welcome to some very famous people you've never really heard of and may barely recognize. This podcast contains bite-sized biographies of the famous, the infamous, and the quirky, all presented in less than an hour. My name is Philip D. Gibbons, and there is more information about me, this podcast, and a bibliography at someveryfamouspeople.com. At the conclusion of this presentation, there will be additional suggestions concerning further information about today's subject, King Ludwig II of Bavaria. In the United States, King Ludwig II of Bavaria is virtually unknown. Even those Americans fortunate enough to visit one of his castles learn very little about the remarkable life and mysterious demise of this enigmatic individual. Why then is Ludwig II venerated with cult-like enthusiasm in Germany as a true visionary, seer, and Renaissance man? His reclusive ways, strange personality, and deep neuroses in life would not normally be perceived as qualities associated with greatness. How did his spendthrift ways and architectural obsessions ultimately lead to a cultural legacy that currently generates many billions of dollars to a grateful nation? Even in his own lifetime, Ludwig II repeatedly stated that he wished to remain an enigma, a destiny that would be dramatically fulfilled in his final days. Ludwig II was born on August 25, 1845. His father, Maximilian, was then the crown prince of Bavaria. His grandfather, Ludwig I, was the king of Bavaria and a member of the House of Wittelsbach, the ruling dynasty that had governed the kingdom of Bavaria for over 600 years. Bavaria, situated between Austria and Prussia, was one of the many disorganized nation-states that would ultimately form the country of Germany. This evolution, dominated by Prussia, would become the pervasive political development of Ludwig II's life. For now, that was all in the future. Bavaria would be swept by the same unrest that prevailed throughout Europe in 1848. Ludwig I abdicated in favor of his son, Maximilian II, who would reign for 16 years. Upon Maximilian's death, Ludwig became Ludwig II at the age of 18. His childhood had not been particularly happy, raised by governesses and without interaction with or affection from either of his parents, he spent much of his time in emotional isolation. He also developed a hostility toward his younger brother Otto, feeling that because he was the heir and expected to reign eventually as the king, he was held to a much higher standard. He steadily withdrew into a solitary world that focused on the German folk heroes and legends depicted in the artwork and tapestries of the royal court. Exposed to accounts of Louis XIV and Versailles, the Teutonic legends of Lohengrin and Parsifal, and the mighty Wotan and Siegfried, Ludwig became engrossed with an unreal world. He spent very little time with children of his own age and seemed unduly preoccupied with his status as the crown prince and eventual king. Ludwig also spent much of his childhood at the restored palace of Hohenschwangau, which means the High District of the Swan. His father had restored the medieval ruin into an extraordinary edifice, and the site, associated with numerous historical figures from Bavaria's past, only fueled Ludwig's preoccupation with legend and folklore. Situated on a hill near the rural town of Fusen, the distinctive bright yellow walls and red tile roofing and classic turreted design of the castle presented a remarkable sight. This also developed Ludwig's strong interest in artwork, building, and architecture. Hohenschwangau was the official summer residence of Maximilian II, and Ludwig and his brother spent a great deal of time hiking the surrounding alpine trails and exploring the region's remarkable natural beauty. Comparatively, Ludwig was less comfortable in the residence, the official winter palace of the Wittelsbachs, situated in the capital city of Munich. Although Ludwig was classically educated with a demanding regimen of individual instruction that absorbed much of his formative years, his tutors seemed to encourage the concepts of divine right and autocracy. For Ludwig, this only amplified an arrogant and entitled identity that would be poorly suited to his adult responsibilities. Ludwig's outlook was also greatly influenced by the music and literature composed by Richard Wagner. 
even as a teenager, the crown prince became obsessed by operatic works that drew heavily from German mythology, and the composers expressed desire for a strong national identity that appealed personally to Ludwig. Initially, Wagner, a controversial figure both musically and politically, was banned in the more conservative environment of Bavaria. However, the increasing popularity of the composer eventually swept away this opposition. On February 2, 1861, Ludwig was allowed to attend a Munich performance of the opera Lohengrin, the title character a heroic and mysterious knight who arrives in a boat drawn by a swan. The Swan Knight was the inspiration for many of Ludwig's childhood musings, and this performance was to leave a permanently profound impression. His father and grandfather had spent a great deal of time and money patronizing various artists and architects in an attempt to bring sophistication to Munich, the Bavarian capital. Ludwig became convinced that Richard Wagner would be the artist that would help him create an escape from what he considered the mundane world of the 19th century. Ludwig's eccentric introspection and self-absorption was noted at the Bavarian court, but in 1864 it was not of great concern, as Maximilian II was only in his early 50s and presumably would reign for several more decades. This situation suddenly changed in March of 1864 when Maximilian succumbed to a brief and historically indeterminate illness that placed Ludwig on the throne. The socially awkward and immature 18-year-old would now have to assume the responsibility of imperial rule. Nevertheless, public expectations for the new ruler were extremely optimistic. Despite his youth, his physical appearance was quite impressive. Six foot four inches tall, muscular and physically imposing, with strikingly attractive features, Ludwig was a personally charismatic individual. At his ascendancy, he was quite popular with his subjects, especially the simple peasantry of rural Catholic Bavaria. Despite the new king's adolescent preoccupation with divine right, the harsh reality of Bavaria's constitutional monarchy was the fact that the Bavarian government was made up of a complicated structure that included a parliament and a ministry. By actual definition, Ludwig II had no real political power. He was merely consulted on governmental issues and could privately advise his ministers as to an opinion. But the government could and would function without his guidance and attention. From the earliest days of his reign, Ludwig expressed little interest in politics, instead focusing on a privilege he did enjoy as the king, spending money derived from the royal treasury and his annual income from the state. Only a few months after becoming the king, Ludwig ordered his cabinet secretary, Franz von Fistermeister, to locate Richard Wagner and bring him to Munich. Von Fistermeister was an important member of the government and Ludwig's intermediary to the Bavarian ministry. Initially, he claimed that Wagner could not be located, but Ludwig insisted, and von Fistermeister was able to track down the composer in Stuttgart. For Richard Wagner, the timing of this summons to the capital could not have been any more fortuitous. While the talent of this groundbreaking composer was undeniable, he had a tendency to live luxuriously beyond his means. When unpaid bills began to accumulate in a particular city, Wagner and his wife would move on. This lifestyle would eventually destroy his marriage, although Wagner's propensity for adulterous affairs also contributed to this development. After associating with a revolutionary group in Dresden during the rebellions that swept through Europe in 1848, Wagner was subject to arrest and fled to Switzerland. Although he would live in exile for over a decade, he would continue to comprise operas that would occasionally be performed with the cooperation of associates like Franz Liszt. Still, his artistic objectives were stunted by his inability to finance production of his more elaborate compositions, and he barely scraped by, always a step ahead of his creditors. In fact, when the king's secretary finally found the composer's address in Stuttgart and presented Wagner's innkeeper with his card and a request to meet, Wagner presumed it had to be a ruse concocted by one of his creditors. He was utterly astonished when von Fistermeister introduced himself, explained that the king personally wished he accompany his secretary to Munich, and if Wagner agreed, Ludwig would do everything possible to help the composer to achieve his artistic objectives. For Wagner, this must have been the 19th century equivalent of hitting the lottery. Shortly after meeting the young Ludwig, he wrote to a friend, He wants me always to be at his side, to work, to relax, to produce my operas. He will give me everything I need to this end. You cannot believe the magic of his eyes. Oh, may he but live. It is an unbelievable miracle. 
Ludwig expressed practically obsessive sentiments in a letter to Wagner, written within days of meeting the composer in Munich for the first time. Believe me, I will do everything in my power to make up to you for what you have suffered in the past. I will take from you the everyday cares of life forever. I will secure for you the peace which you have longed for, so that you will be free to spread the mighty wings of your genius in the holy air of your rapturous art. Unconscious though you were of this fact, you have been the sole source of my happiness ever since I was a mere boy, my friend who spoke to my heart as no other did, my best teacher and educator. I will repay to you all that is within my power. Oh, how I have waited for this moment, the moment when I am able to do this. I hardly dared to indulge my wish of being able to prove my love to you so soon. Ludwig immediately demonstrated that such enthusiasm was not idle talk. Wagner was quickly awarded an annual salary of 4,000 gulden a year, on top of a personal gift of an additional 4,000 gulden. Although it would be difficult to calculate today's equivalent value, this was a substantial sum of money and immediately went to pay off the composer's sizable debt. Typically, Wagner was not shy with requests for support, and the king arranged for the rental of a villa at Lake Starnberg in the vicinity of the capital. Ludwig's choice for a home for Wagner was not accidental. With the death of his father, the king was free to live wherever he wished. The queen still spent the summers at Hohenschwangau, but Ludwig, never really close to his mother, avoided her by residing at Castle Berg, also situated on Lake Starnberg and only a few miles from Wagner's residence. King and composer met on a frequent basis, formulating plans for the production of performances and compositions of Wagner's music. In June of 1864, Ludwig decided to spend time at the German resort of Bad Kissingen, a spa town that was popular with other members of the European aristocracy. It would be Ludwig's first foray as a king into such heady society. Ludwig quickly met with his cousin, the Empress of Austria, Elizabeth and Franz Josef, the Emperor. Elizabeth was the daughter of a minor Wittelsbach duke, Maximilian Joseph, and Ludwika, a sister of Ludwig's grandfather, Ludwig I. Ludwika's sister, Sophia, had married the previous emperor of Austria, Franz Karl, in the practically incestuous world of royal European matchmaking when, in 1853, Sophia began looking for a suitable wife for her son, now emperor as a result of her husband's 1848 abdication, she looked no further than her own family. Sophia and Ludwika arranged a meeting between Franz Josef and Elizabeth's older sibling, Helene, but the emperor upset the machinations of his domineering mother by proposing instead to the 15-year-old Elizabeth. Eight months later, the 16-year-old Elizabeth, whose astonishing features and remarkably long braided brunette hair had characterized her as the most beautiful woman in Europe, married the 23-year-old emperor. Ludwig II and the Empress Elizabeth, nicknamed Sissi, had similar personalities and were both unsuited for the positions they occupied. The decade following her marriage had been filled with both dysfunction and tragedy. When she rapidly gave birth to a pair of daughters, her vindictive mother-in-law immediately took charge of the children and began to raise them according to her own strict standards. One of these children, Sophie, died at the age of two. The other, Gisela, quickly became estranged from her mother. Her mother-in-law constantly insinuated that an empress who could not produce a male heir was worthless, but at least this antagonism was removed with the birth of Archduke Rudolf in 1859. Like Ludwig, Elizabeth disliked the stuffy atmosphere of court life. Her father, informally known as Max, was a bohemian who enjoyed music. Allegedly, it was at Max's home at Possenhoven Castle that Ludwig first discovered the sheet music of Richard Wagner. Elizabeth spent much of her time traveling throughout Europe, avoiding boring court functions and avoiding her husband, whose typically royal roving eye would be the source of blatant adultery and even venereal disease. She spent months and even years away from Vienna and refused additional intimacy that might lead to pregnancy. It was at this point in her life that Ludwig renewed their acquaintance. Elizabeth would become and remain the most influential female figure of Ludwig's life. Both were free-spirited, artistically inclined, socially iconoclastic, and prone to deep depression. They exchanged frequent letters, and Elizabeth's ancestral home at Possenhoven, also situated on Lake Starnberg, would be the site of many visits between the two monarchs. But Ludwig's devotion bordered on the childlike, and the older Elizabeth, married and unobtainable, was seen as more of a kindred spirit than a lover. The two exchanged flowery letters and poetry, but certainly nothing in regard to romance. 
when the eventful summer of 1864 ended, Ludwig would return to the reality of a brewing controversy surrounding his patronage of Richard Wagner. During Ludwig's absence from Berg and Lake Starnberg, Wagner had invited his friend, composer Hans von Bülow, and his wife Cosima to his villa. The composer felt too ill to travel, but encouraged his wife and children to visit Wagner on their own. That's all the time it took for Wagner and Cosima to consummate an infatuation that had begun in Berlin in 1863. This clandestine relationship would continue from this point on. With Ludwig's return to central Munich in the fall of 1864, he found Wagner's living situation unacceptably remote and proceeded to rent an impressive building located near the royal apartments of the residence. Wagner had already gone through the 8,000 gulden initially provided as well as an additional 20,000. This did not include funds paid to some of Wagner's creditors when he arrived in Munich. Although this arrangement was supposed to be a strictly confidential state secret, government officials saw to it that unofficial leaks quickly made their way into the local press. This public awareness at least forced Wagner to contractually agree to provide specific works in exchange for any additional money. For an additional 30,000 gulden, he agreed to spend the next three years completing his ambitious During des Nibelungen, four operas concerning Norse and German mythology, and that the rights to these works would be owned by the king. It seemed that finally some degree of control had been asserted over the spendthrift composer. But even the agreement was disingenuous in that Wagner had already sold the rights to this material to another patron years earlier. It would be many years before Ludwig II would become aware of this detail. Rumors were also circulating about Wagner's relationship with Cosima von Bülow. Despite the fact that Hans von Bülow had had a stroke in the summer of 1864, Cosima von Bülow remained at Lake Starnberg with Wagner. At the request of Wagner, Hans von Bülow was appointed a court musician, but this merely ensured that the von Bülows would remain in Munich. Cosima split her time between her husband's modest apartment and Wagner's opulent residence, interacting with Wagner on a daily basis. Approximately nine months after Cosima and Wagner's dalliance at Lake Starnberg, the composer's mistress gave birth to a daughter she named Isolde. The title of Wagner's latest composition, Tristan and Isolde, ironically to be conducted by Hans von Bülow, was well known to the public, and this only confirmed the paternity of the child before a gossipy public. Despite the continued uproar over his scandalous behavior and financial transgressions, Wagner's latest creation premiered in front of Ludwig II on June 10, 1865. Tristan and Isolde was a spectacular success and further cemented Wagner's reputation in the mind of Ludwig. But this success merely emboldened the rapacious composer. In August of 1865, he sent an expense request to the king for the sum of 200,000 gulden, a breathtaking amount considering that Ludwig's personal annual disposable income totaled only 300,000 gulden. At this point, various officials within the government, determined to put a stop to this excess, succeeded in interceding with Ludwig and limiting the amount to 40,000 gulden. It was here that Wagner overplayed his hand. In an attempt to circumvent the government officials who stood in his way, he began to compose anonymous articles calling for a reorganization of the Bavarian cabinet and the elimination of certain officials. Based on Wagner's previous reputation as a leftist radical, it became quite simple for the government, members of the royal family, Ludwig I among others was still alive, and even clergymen to demand that Wagner be expelled from Bavaria as a dangerous dissident. Reluctantly, Ludwig II agreed, and in early December 1865, he signed an order banishing the composer for a period of six months. Although Ludwig had agreed to the exile, he was not happy with the development. He sent money to Wagner to support him in Switzerland, and when the composer found a permanent residence that suited his splendorous needs, Ludwig also agreed to pick up the tab. This magnificent three-story villa, called Tribschen, was situated on Lake Lucerne and featured spectacular alpine vistas. This soap opera was interrupted by a regional crisis, being instigated by the Prussian Chancellor Otto von Bismarck. Bismarck was attempting to eliminate Austria's influence over the Confederation of German States by starting an armed conflict over the principalities of Schleswig and Holstein. He reached an agreement with Italy to form an alliance in the event of an offensive war. Because of Bavaria's close ties to the Habsburgs and a fundamental distrust of Prussia, Ludwig felt compelled in March of 1866 to reach an alliance with the Austrian government in the event of an aggressive attack. 
But Ludwig was fundamentally opposed to the concept of 19th century warfare. And as a war between Prussia and Austria became more and more inevitable, he resisted the full-scale mobilization of the Bavarian army. On May 9th, in a meeting of his ministers to discuss the crisis, his ministers all insisted on a full-scale mobilization. But Ludwig understood that this would all but guarantee a German civil war, and he told a stunned council of ministers that he would rather abdicate in favor of his brother than give such an order. Although he relented the next day and called for a mobilization of the army and a meeting of the Landtag, the Bavarian parliament on May 22nd, to discuss the issue, Ludwig then fled Munich for the seclusion of Kasselberg. Rendering himself so inaccessible during such a critical time period was a distinctly unpopular course of action. Decisions that might require immediate action might now take hours or even days. To the government, the press, and the public, it looked as if Ludwig was abandoning his responsibility. With much of Europe either preparing for armed conflict or attempting to negotiate a peaceful reconciliation, Ludwig's behavior became increasingly bizarre. Upon meeting with Fistermeister at Berg on May 15th, he again reiterated his desire to abdicate rather than be a party to war. Even Wagner, who understood the personal economic ramifications of such an abdication, strongly urged the king to focus on the matter at hand. Instead, Ludwig became even more erratic. On May 22nd, he suddenly informed his ministers that he was too ill to personally open the Landtag, and instead headed secretly to the German-Swiss border by train. By early afternoon, he had arrived at Wagner's villa at Tribschen in time to celebrate the composer's 53rd birthday. Ludwig spent two days in Switzerland, again threatening to abdicate and join his friend permanently. Wagner again pleaded with Ludwig to continue his reign. Upon his return to Bavaria, the rumors of Ludwig's visit to Wagner swept the capital and were greeted with disbelief and derision. When the Landtag finally convened on May 27th, Ludwig was in attendance, but despite the last-minute machinations of various entities, especially Austria, war unavoidably broke out on June 16th. Predictably, Ludwig would have absolutely nothing to do with leadership during what became known as the Seven Weeks War. Unlike Prussia, which had been preparing for years for an aggressive war against Austria, Bavaria's military was disorganized, equipped with ancient weaponry, and led by members of the aristocracy who were no match for the sophisticated Prussian general staff. Fortunately, Bismarck was only interested in expelling Austria from any future German influence and confined most of his aggression to Austrian territory in Bohemia, present-day Czech Republic. He was also careful to rapidly bring the war to a conclusion before any conflict could entangle Prussia in a lengthy war with Russia or France. However, even during this brief period, Ludwig did visit the front lines and observed wounded and dead Bavarian soldiers. This experience merely confirmed his distaste for modern warfare that bore no resemblance to the knights and warriors of the legendary past. It also reinforced an antagonism toward Prussia, which Ludwig and most Bavarians correctly assumed was eventually intent on dominating the loose confederation of German states. For the moment, Bismarck allowed Bavaria to sign a benign peace treaty that meant a minor loss of territory and dignity, but a secret agreement was reached that provided that Bavaria support Prussia in any future combat. Ludwig II was greatly depressed by the prospect of future destruction and the humiliation of a forced alliance with Prussia. With the end of the international crisis, the Bavarian court and German newspapers returned to gossiping about the private affairs of the king. The menage a trois between Richard Wagner and the von Bülows was not the only melodrama surrounding the private life of Ludwig II. In his early 20s, remarkably attractive and one of the most eligible unmarried monarchs in Europe, the king had not publicly been associated with even a mention of potential romance. An extremely close relationship with a member of Bavarian high society, Prince Paul von Turn und Taxis, led to private speculation about Ludwig's sexual proclivities. Perhaps it was the desire to dispel these rumors and imperial peer pressure that precipitated another imperial interpersonal fiasco. The aforementioned Ludwika, Empress Elizabeth's mother, had successfully married off all but one of her daughters to European royalty or nobility. She believed that Ludwig would be a suitable match for her last remaining daughter, Sophie, and the Queen Mother Marie, Ludwig's mother, agreed. Initially, Ludwig resisted, even breaking off his correspondence with Sophie so as not to appear to be officially interested. But, following a particularly amicable evening with Sophie at a formal ball in January of 1867, Ludwig changed his mind and suddenly announced to his mother that he wished to marry Sophie. 
an immediate formal proposal and acceptance was arranged. And when Sophie sat with Ludwig at a play on the following evening, the public became aware of the situation. All of Bavaria was thrilled at the thought of their young king marrying and continuing the dynasty. Unfortunately, Ludwig immediately had misgivings and began to realize that moving forward with the marriage would be a disaster. Publicly, he initially attempted to maintain an appropriate veneer of enthusiasm and affection. Privately, the courtship featured nothing more than an occasional furtive kiss on the brow. Ludwig spent much of the summer arriving at Sophie's family's palace at Possenhoven at all hours of the night, where the couple would engage in awkward small talk and interact without any real passion. By the end of the summer and the impending August wedding date, Ludwig decided to postpone the event. His explanation was that the wedding would be rescheduled for October 12th, the anniversary date of his grandfather Ludwig I and father Max II. But when Ludwig also canceled the wedding on this date, Sophie's parents demanded that he either set a permanent date or call it off for good. Ludwig chose to characterize this demand as impertinent and informed Sophie that as a result, the engagement was officially ended. Ultimately, he did send a letter that explained his lack of affection and unwillingness to enter into a union that would make both of them miserable. But Sophie's family was outraged, and it was a long time before Ludwig's behavior was forgiven by the Empress Elizabeth. Even worse, Ludwig's standing with the public suffered, and he was viewed as indecisive, immature, and possibly even mentally unbalanced. This incident seems to have had a profound effect on Ludwig II. From this point on, he would mostly ignore any official responsibilities and would isolate himself from all but his closest orderlies and servants. The personality quirks of his childhood now seemed to be developing into pronounced adult neuroses. He dealt with criticism and failings in his personal relationships by withdrawing into practically total isolation. He virtually refused to appear in Munich with the exception of only the most necessary affairs of state. He became more nocturnal and spent most of his days sleeping. A poor diet that included excessive alcohol, sugar, and fat led to weight gain and tooth decay. The latter left untreated because of the king's phobia concerning pain and dentists. Even his relationship with Wagner deteriorated, although this had more to do with the composer's public manipulation and the ensuing embarrassment to the crown. When a Munich newspaper hinted that Wagner was the actual father of Cosima von Bülow's latest children, the couple implored Ludwig to sign a letter that indicated that the von Bülows were honorable people and their marriage intact. When subsequent events indicated that this was not the case, Ludwig was humiliated and his judgment again publicly called into question. His relationship with Richard Wagner would survive, but it would never be the same. Ludwig's refusal to provide responsible leadership and his attempts to escape into his own fantasy world could not have occurred at a more inopportune moment. With Prussia and France getting closer to an inevitable conflict with each passing day, Ludwig's ministers attempted to assemble a coalition of southern German entities that could oppose Prussian domination of a united Germany. But all of these efforts failed as Ludwig either refused to meet with foreign diplomats or refused to come to an agreement with Prussia, an agreement that he felt would ultimately undermine his autonomy. Provoking a war in Europe in the 19th century was relatively easy to accomplish. In the case of France and Prussia in 1870, two entities intent on warfare anyway, all it took was a telegram, reworded by Bismarck, to insult the honor of the French government. In July of 1870, Napoleon III and Wilhelm I of Prussia had been bickering over France's demand that Wilhelm publicly guarantee that no member of Prussia's royal family would assume the throne of Spain. The telegram from Wilhelm to Bismarck announced that he would refuse to meet with the French foreign minister, and Bismarck subtly changed it to be as hostile as possible. When publicly released, it precipitated outrage in France and national demands to militarily punish the upstart Prussians, considered to be France's military inferior. The French declared war on July 16, 1870. The Franco-Prussian War essentially lasted less than a month, an utter debacle for France that legitimized Prussia as the preeminent European power. Although Bavaria had mobilized its troops to support Prussia and live up to its secret agreement, Bismarck wasted no time in consolidating Prussian power over all of the German states. Part of this consolidation was the resolution as to which monarch would rule over the new united German Empire. Ludwig had hoped naively that Bismarck might recognize the Wittelsbachs, but Bismarck fully intended for Prussia's ruling family, the Hohenzollerns, to assume this role. Typically, Ludwig refused to attend the post-war negotiations that were held at Versailles, sending instead his ministers and even his brother, Otto. 
Bismarck not only wanted Wilhelm I to be the new Kaiser or emperor of the German Empire, he wanted Ludwig II to request this officially. To this end, he dispatched the Bavarian minister, Max von Holstein, back to meet with Ludwig II at Hohenschwangau. Ludwig, bedridden with a massive toothache, quickly acquiesced without even consulting any other members of his government. He signed a letter drafted by Bismarck, known historically as the Kaiser Brief, which agreed to Wilhelm I's installation as the emperor of the new German Empire. He half-heartedly attended the military reviews that were conducted to celebrate the Bavarian role in the Franco-Prussian War, understanding that the Wittelsbachs were now subservient within the new German state. As Ludwig became more isolated from day-to-day -day reality, his preoccupation with architecture and building became more prominent. As early as 1868, he had written to Wagner of his desire to build a castle in the style of German folklore, something that might be occupied by one of the heroic figures of a Wagnerian opera. Having thoroughly explored the area around Hohenschwangau, Ludwig selected a dramatic location on a raised plateau known as the Pollitt Gorge. Sketches were composed by architects after consultation with Ludwig II about his visions for the building. Construction began in 1869. It would not end until after Ludwig's death. Initially called New Hohenschwangau Castle, it would ultimately be named Neuschwanstein, or New Swanstone Castle. Although Ludwig seemed rooted in the past, this and all of his other palaces would include the latest technological advances, including central heating and electric lighting. Ludwig's second major building project was the Schloss Linderhof. Initially a hunting lodge built by his father, Ludwig relocated the lodge and in 1873 planned a building inspired by the Rococo style of the 18th century. Its remarkable facade is crowned with a statue of Atlas holding the earth. It emphasizes Ludwig's fascination with the French Louis XIV. A grand statue of Louis stands in the palace's impressive vestibule underneath the Bourbon family motto, Nec Pluribus Impar gilded in Latin, into the ceiling. Much more ornate than Neuschwanstein, the house is the crown jewel amidst a large park-like garden that contained various smaller structures. These structures included the Venus Grotto, the Moorish Kiosk, and the Moroccan House. The Venus Grotto emanated from a setting in Wagner's opera Tannhauser. The grotto, essentially a subterranean artificial lake, allowed Ludwig to be rowed in a miniature swan boat amidst tinted artificial light to the accompaniment of orchestral music. The smallest of Ludwig's palaces, it was finished during his lifetime. Ludwig's most ambitious project was the creation of Heron Kempsa, a palace meant to be a faithful recreation of Versailles. As if that vision was not challenging enough, Ludwig chose an island in the middle of Bavaria's largest lake, the Heron Insel as the site of his third palace creation. All building materials would have to be transported to the island that even today is only accessible via small ferry boat. Some of the features of the palace would tend to indicate that Ludwig's mind was now consumed by visions of grandiosity. The Hall of Mirrors at Heron Kemsa is actually larger and longer than the Versailles original. The bathroom contained a bathtub that could easily fit 50 people and needed a stairway to enter. The writing room of the palace featured an ornate desk that could be folded into the floor, rendering it invisible. Every room in the palace was adorned with furniture, decorations, frescoes, gilded moldings, and chandeliers that were even more ornate than that of Neuschwanstein, Linderhof, or even Versailles itself. The order for porcelain for Ludwig's small apartment was the largest single order ever received by the Meissen Porcelain Works. Construction would start in 1878 and would cease with Ludwig's death, the palace and gardens still unfinished despite over 16 million marks of expenditure. During Ludwig's lifetime, the public was forbidden to enter the palace grounds. Only servants or an occasional expressly invited visitor were permitted. This was in line with the ever more reclusive life that Ludwig began to pursue in the 1870s. He spent his days sleeping and nights reading obscure literature, frequently from the era of Louis XIV. He commissioned plays and operas to be performed privately in large theaters in Munich for his benefit with no other audience. He would take evening rides in his gilded carriage or sleigh in winter, his footmen dressed in the manner of the court of Louis XIV, the king drawn by white horses that made a spectacular impression on the rural inhabitants of backwoods Bavaria. Occasionally, the king would stop and interact with the lowliest of his subjects, leaving behind an impressive souvenir. In this way, he remained extremely popular with these simple folk. 
There was no talk of any relationships with the opposite sex. Instead, Ludwig was frequently accompanied by a male member of his entourage, usually a mid-level servant or soldier assigned to his detail. Several of these relationships occurred over the years, and historians now presume that Ludwig II was a homosexual. But in strictly Catholic Bavaria, such behavior was literally illegal, and Ludwig is believed to have confided about this matter only in a secret diary that was sealed by his descendants and accidentally destroyed during World War II. Ludwig's deteriorating relationship with Richard Wagner is illustrative of the king's isolated existence. Ludwig had once journeyed by himself to Switzerland to see his closest and most beloved friend. By 1872, they only exchanged an occasional letter, despite Wagner's interest in building an appropriate venue for performances of his music. In the past, Ludwig would not have hesitated to completely bankroll such a venture. Instead, he gave Wagner 25,000 gulden to start a project in Bayreuth. Eventually, when rumors began to circulate that Wagner had approached the Prussian-backed German government, Ludwig extended an additional 100,000 gulden, but this was expressly a loan that contractually would have to be paid back. Even with the completion of the Opera House in Bayreuth in 1876, Ludwig's behavior remained peculiar. Wagner announced that he would perform the ring cycle of four operas in August of 1876. Ludwig refused to attend the public performances. Instead, he said he would privately attend the ring dress rehearsals. When the entire town turned out to greet the king's train in Bayreuth, Ludwig delayed his arrival until early morning and disembarked at a small railroad siding a few miles away. There he greeted Richard Wagner, who he had not seen in eight years. Both looked very different. Ludwig had put on a great deal of weight was missing teeth and no longer the handsome youth of earlier days. Wagner was an old man, perhaps tired out from the ordeal of building his opera house. Ludwig had initially intended to watch the operas privately, but he was so impressed and overwhelmed that he decided to return at the end of August to see the ring performed again. Gratified by Wagner acknowledging him from the stage as a veritable co-creator of the ring, Ludwig even enjoyed the crowds that lined the route back to his lodging in Bayreuth. Ludwig's final personal interaction with Richard Wagner would be a strange incident that occurred in Munich in 1880. Arriving 15 minutes late for a performance of Wagner's Parsifal, the king requested that the composer repeat the prelude for him. Then he requested that Wagner play the prelude to Lohengrin, prompting the already incensed Wagner to hand his baton to an underling and storm out of the theater. Wagner would die in Venice three years later. Ludwig did not attend either a memorial in Munich or the funeral in Bayreuth. He did ask that as a tribute, every piano in his castles be covered permanently in black crepe. Ludwig II considered any discussion of thrift when it came to the construction of his castles as demeaning and insulting. Although he did not use the state of Bavaria's money, he did use his income from the civil list and any personal income from the state, as well as loans from various financial institutions. But his debts greatly exceeded his income. By 1884, his personal debt stood at 7.5 million marks. Only a year later, this amount had doubled to approximately 14 million marks. Because the castles were the king's personal property and not the state's, they could be seized by his creditors. All of Ludwig's building projects screeched to a halt. Instead of making some obvious lifestyle changes, Ludwig instead sent court officials in search of loans all across Europe and threatened to fire them if they were unsuccessful. Whatever loans that were offered stipulated that they would be used to pay creditors and not for further construction. For Ludwig, this was unacceptable. In the winter of 1885-1886, he did what he usually did when faced with a crisis. He ignored it. Instead of spending at least part of the winter in Munich, he avoided the capital and any interaction with members of the government who might compel him to face financial reality. Unfortunately, in Ludwig's absence, deep hostility began to fester among the aristocracy of Bavaria. Ludwig had ignored his political obligations since the end of the Franco-Prussian War, and his open disdain for formal society and its inhabitants was no secret. Additionally, his massive personal debt was a potential embarrassment for the Wittelsbach dynasty and a financial millstone that might plague any successors for decades. Something had to be done. As early as 1885, Prince Leopold, Ludwig's uncle, the brother of King Max II, and the youngest son of King Ludwig I, secretly began meeting with the Prime Minister of Bavaria, Johann von Lutz, to formulate a coup against Ludwig II. 
Technically, Ludwig's brother Otto was next in the line of succession, but Otto had been locked up on the outskirts of Munich when, in 1880, his deteriorating mental state had descended into full-blown schizophrenia. As the senior member of the dynasty, the rest of the Wittelsbachs now turned to Leopold to restore some stability and dignity to the Bavarian throne. Over the next year, Leopold carefully conspired to put a plan in place to replace Ludwig II as the prince regent, the de facto king in the event that Ludwig was declared mentally unfit to rule. Now the only obstacle was how to implement such a plan. Dereliction of responsibility and financial malfeasance were not grounds to declare the king unfit. Insanity, however, was, so that was the pretext that Leopold and von Lutz would use to remove Ludwig. They recruited Dr. Bernhard von Guden, a prominent professor of psychiatry who had treated Prince Otto, to conduct an, an official inquiry into the sanity of Ludwig II and to an assemble an official deposition on the topic. This report would essentially rely on anecdotal evidence from servants who may have been bribed for their testimony. As the inquiry became more widespread, individual aides who were close to the king came forward with evidence that would contradict a finding of insanity. They were ignored. Dr. von Guden concluded that a personal examination of Ludwig was unnecessary. He, along with three other doctors, signed a document declaring Ludwig permanently mentally incompetent. On June 7, 1886, Prince Leopold and Prime Minister von Lutz met with members of the Bavarian government. All agreed that the coup should take place immediately. Prince Leopold drafted a letter and dispatched several ministers and Dr. von Guden to Hohenschwangau to inform the king of the regency and to take him into custody. Unfortunately for the conspirators, Ludwig had unexpectedly moved to Neuschwanstein the previous day, and when the chief coachman for Ludwig was informed at Hohenschwangau that the king was to be detained, he fled up the hill and told Ludwig what was happening. Ludwig II, although stunned, ordered the gates of the castle closed and sent a soldier to the town of Fusen to inform the local police that a coup was underway. Gradually, the commission made its way up the hill by carriage, but were stopped by armed soldiers at the gatehouse. By now, local townspeople armed with axes, swords, and rifles had become aware of the situation, and utterly loyal to the king, they began to threaten and heckle Ludwig's opposition. The group ultimately were arrested and held in Neuschwanstein, but Ludwig eventually let them go. They fled back to Hohenschwangau. Advised to flee over the border into Austria, Ludwig instead composed a passionate letter addressed to the people of Bavaria in which he asked them to oppose his removal, and he characterized Prince Leopold and the von Lutz government as traitors. Thousands of copies were printed, but the regency already declared in Munich prevented it from being widely disseminated. Prince Leopold understood that a popular uprising could only be avoided if Ludwig was taken into custody immediately. An armed detachment was sent to Neuschwanstein to forcibly apprehend the king. They surrounded the castle and cut off any possible escape route. At midnight on June 12th, Dr. von Guden and members of his commission attempted to approach the castle. By now, any members of Ludwig's staff of any consequence had been ordered back to Munich under penalty of arrest for high treason. Many of his servants had also fled. Ludwig might have escaped as well, but he chose to stay, assuming that the people would not abandon him. This time, von Guden was able to enter the castle and detain Ludwig without incident. Nevertheless, Ludwig continually protested, asking the doctor how he could presumably declare him insane without any formal examination. While Ludwig remained vocally defiant, he agreed to leave the castle voluntarily. Escorted by orderlies, both in front and behind him, he's alleged to have descended the courtyard steps, gazed back at his magnificent castle, and whispered, Farewell, Schwanstein, child of my sorrows. The king climbed into the second of three carriages, and the little procession made its way through the gates of the castle. On the road to Hohenschwangau, townspeople and peasants stood in the early morning fog and drizzle and watched silently as Ludwig II passed by them for the final time. Eight hours later, the carriages pulled up to the Castle Burg, the palace that had been decided upon as Ludwig's house of detention. Ludwig, under guard, slept through the night of the 12th of June. Sunday, June 13, 1886, began uneventfully for the now-deposed king. Although locked doors with holes drilled through them made it clear that he was captive and under surveillance, he remained calm and talkative with the doctors and servants in his vicinity. In late morning, Ludwig and Dr. von Guden went for a walk in the palace gardens. Ludwig asked repeatedly as to how von Guden and the other doctors meant to cure him, but the stroll was otherwise uneventful. 
Ludwig spent the rest of the day gazing out of the window at the surface of Lake Starnberg, even requesting his opera glasses to observe some of the boats and other objects on the lake. The weather steadily worsened, and a driving rain pelted the castle for much of the rest of the day. Ludwig became concerned that his evening walk would be canceled, but was assured by von Guden that despite the weather, they would proceed after dinner. At approximately four o'clock, Ludwig began to consume a full meal, accompanied by typically heavy consumption of alcohol, a stein of beer, two glasses of spiced wine, three glasses of white wine, and two shots of a cordial. Ludwig was a heavy drinker, and alcohol was one of the factors contributing to his weight gain over the years. At 6.45, von Guden and Ludwig left the castle. Both men were dressed for the steady rain and chill that persisted that evening. The doctor, feeling their presence was demeaning and unnecessary, told the orderlies who had followed them from a distance during the morning walk to remain at Castle Berg. The two men made their way down a pathway that led to the lake and disappeared from view. What happened in the next few moments to von Guden and Ludwig II has remained a mystery to this day. As darkness fell and there was no sign of the two men, several sentries were sent to the lake to try and locate the missing pair. By nine o'clock, an exhaustive search of the castle grounds was ordered. Quickly, the king's umbrella, coat, and suit jacket were spotted near a bench. A sentry followed the nearest path down to the lake and discovered the king's bowler and von Guden's top hat floating in the water. Several of the doctors leading the search party quickly recruited a local fisherman to use his boat to search along the shoreline. Several men proceeded to row near the spot where the two hats had been recovered. A dark mass was spotted in the reeds that grew close to the shoreline of Lake Starnberg. It was a body floating face down in about four feet of water. Two servants jumped into the lake and turned the lifeless form over. It was Ludwig, clearly dead for quite some time. He was pulled into the boat and dragged on shore where frantic efforts to resuscitate him began. The search party then returned to the lake and quickly located von Guden, also floating in the water. Unsuccessful efforts to revive both men continued for some time, but ultimately were suspended. It was noted that von Guden had a bruised eye, a deep cut in his forehead and cheek, and scratches on his nose and face. One of his fingernails was practically torn off. Obviously, a violent struggle had occurred. The death of Ludwig II was met by shock and grief throughout Bavaria. The king's body was conveyed to the capital, where it would publicly lie in state for three days in the chapel of the residence. An immense funeral procession would convey the king to St. Michael's Church and his burial place in the church crypt, a procession that would take over two and a half hours. The funeral of Ludwig is believed to be the largest state occasion in the history of the city of Munich. As in all historical mysteries, conspiracy theories abound. Ludwig's proclamation of the people to violently resist his removal was a potentially dangerous threat. The same individuals who deposed him certainly would have been alarmed by the prospect of an armed rebellion and even civil war. For over a century, various anecdotes have been presented claiming that both men were forcibly drowned to make it look like a murder-suicide. One tale has Ludwig being shot by a sentry and von Guden killed to cover up the murder. Another theory has much of the small craft activity on the lake the result of a plot by the Emperor Elizabeth to extricate Ludwig, take him to Possenhoven, and then safety in Austria. Coincidentally, Elizabeth was in Possenhoven on June 13th. As in all of these affairs, the sad truth is that we will never really know what actually happened. Many of the individuals that were close to Ludwig II during his life also met with great tragedy. Upon Ludwig's death, his brother Otto officially became the king, but his mental illness was so severe that he remained confined for the rest of his life. Their mother, Princess Marie, was so disturbed by Otto's condition that in her final years she was unable to bear visiting him. She died a religious recluse in 1889. Ludwig's cousin Elizabeth would also have to deal with tragedy in 1889 when her only son and heir, Crown Prince Rudolf, and his mistress committed suicide in the scandal known as the Meierling Incident. Ordered by his father, Franz Josef, to break off the affair, the unhappily married Rudolf and his lover ended it all instead. Elizabeth's own life would come to a bizarre end in Geneva in 1898 when she was fatally stabbed by an Italian anarchist as she walked casually along a city street. The empress did not like to draw attention to herself and refused to be accompanied by security of any kind. Leopold, the prince regent, would ultimately overcome the initial lack of enthusiasm over his ascension and reign over Bavaria for 26 years. Because Otto was still alive upon his death, it took an act of parliament to formally name Leopold's son, Ludwig III, the king instead of regent. Technically, Bavaria had two kings for a short time period until Otto's death in 1916. 
With the end of World War I and the abdication of Kaiser Wilhelm II, the Wittelsbach dynasty was also abolished. That is not to say that the Wittelsbach family disappeared from public view. They remained high-profile members of German and Bavarian society who opposed Hitler openly and were placed in concentration camps as a result. Even today, Franz, Duke of Bavaria, the elderly Wittelsbach heir to the throne, is a recognizable and prominent German citizen. Every year on June 13th, the Duke and a large group of people take part in a solemn ceremony on Lake Starnberg to commemorate the death of Ludwig II. One of Leopold's first acts as Prince Regent was to open all of Ludwig's castles to the public. Within weeks of Ludwig's death, these magnificent structures began to generate both income and great interest in the region. Today, they have repaid the amount spent on them by many billions of dollars. Over the years, a reevaluation of Ludwig has taken place, especially in light of what befell Germany in the 20th century. His dislike of Prussia and the militaristic nationalism that would transform the German state, his refusal to take part in warfare, his physical aversion to human suffering, and his disdain for the affairs of the court and political office are now seen in Bavaria as the attitudes of a man far wiser and more prescient than his contemporaries. Once, when a visitor at Linderhof asked Ludwig why he didn't fly a flag over the palace, he pointed to one of the many peacocks that roamed the property and said simply, that is my flag. While his castles are great monuments to his memory, a more moving memorial lies on the shores of Lake Starnberg, an unadorned wooden crucifix at the approximate spot where his body was found. Its simplicity only adds to the utter paradox of the life of the man it commemorates. Ludwig II would not have had it any other way. Thank you for listening to this podcast about King Ludwig II of Bavaria. Much of the information for this podcast came from the books The Swan King, Ludwig II of Bavaria by Christopher McIntosh and The Mad King, The Life and Times of Ludwig II by Greg King. To view an Atlantic Monthly 30-photo essay about Ludwig's life and castles, see the link at my website at someveryfamouspeople.com. There are also additional photographs bibliographical and musical information at this website. If you have enjoyed this presentation, please like us at our Facebook page, Some Very Famous People, and also rate us on iTunes, and if you have the time, leave a brief review. A link is provided at the website.